Ohlasso. This morning we return to awareness of awareness, and this time with a focus on examining the sense of agency, the one who is meditating, releasing, and inverting the awareness. The question of who is doing the meditating, who is observing, comes up quite often when people are just practicing shamatha. And so let's look at the bandwidth here, the spectrum. And that is, if a person is schizophrenic or psychotic, one may have the sense of having virtually no control over one's mind at all. It's correct, isn't it? Yeah. If a person has Lou Gehrig's disease, one may have a sense that one has virtually no control over the body also. So there's an extreme, two extremes. So if a person had Lou Gehrig's and was schizophrenic, then one would feel one has essentially no control over anything. Right? And then we, move, then we move along the bandwidth, you know, out to, out to the realm of normal, where we feel we're kind of in control of the mind, but not that much. If you ever pr- try to practice shamatha for five seconds all in a row, you'll find not that much control. Uh, and then, of course, things like aging and sickness and so forth, not, not much control over that. But we keep moving right over, and just very briefly on the physical side, for professional gymnasts, like Olympic gymnasts, I imagine they probably have a sense of pretty strong control over the body. You know, what they want to do with it, they can do with it, right? And now, the corollary to that is, in fact, shamatha. We're learning how to really gain mastery over. The words supple, malleable, light, buoyant, those are exactly, that's prashvata or shinjang in Tibetan. This is exactly what shamatha is all about. To, to, to cultivate these qualities of the mind. It's supple, malleable, light, buoyant. That sounds like gymnastics to me. You know? And what, interestingly, what comes out of this, out of the shamatha practice, incrementally along the path, but especially once you've achieved it, is an extraordinary suppleness, lightness, buoyancy of both body and mind, because, not because you've been working out in the gym, but because of this profound transformation of the prana. So it's inside out. Now that can be complemented, of course, with the practice of asanas, perhaps pranayama as well but a tremendous uh, suppleness. So it would be interesting, I say a little bit tongue-in-cheek, to see if we, if we had a whole team of people who had all achieved shamatha, how they do in, in athletics, you know, like team shamatha, you know, gold medal after gold medal. That would really you know, draw a lot of attention to dharma. But as one is seeking to gain mastery over the attention so that one is less prone to just spacing out and laxity, less prone to just getting carried away by excitation and agitation, clearly there is a very deliberate sense of seeking to gain greater and greater control over the attention. There's no question about it. It's explicit. When we come especially to settling the mind, and that that is, by the way, that's very, very clear with mindfulness of breathing. It keeps on straying away, and it's like training a dog. Okay, who's in charge here? I'm bigger than you are. I feed you. You don't feed me. Heal. You know, and so there you are, trying to train, subdue your mind, very much like training a dog in mindfulness of breathing. When we move on to settling the mind in its natural state, now it's even a bit more explicit, and that is a sense that I'm observing thoughts. I'm observing images. I'm observing emotions and desires. I'm observing the space of the mind. And that sense of not being any of those, in fact, seeking to overcome cognitive fusion with any of those. Very important. Not just to be the desire, be the pain, be the thought, being caught up and abducted by all of these mental events, but be able to simply observe them. And as the Buddha said, in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. Right? 
Observing the mind as the mind, recognizing the mind as the mind. So this is very clearly the Buddhist teachings. This is not some later interpretation, right? And so in this practice of settling the mind in its natural state, which is just immediately adjacent to the Vipassana practice of citta satipatthana, the close application of mindfulness to the mind, here we are resting and observing these thoughts, and they do seem to be in a way, especially the thoughts, the images, over there as if we were kind of watching a cinema. And there's someone in here, and we're actually cultivating that sense of non-attachment, non-grasping, non-fusion with these thoughts. So it seems to be like a coalescence. It seems like we're affirming a delusion, doesn't it? I am not my thoughts, but I'm controlling my attention. I'm controlling my attention. So we're setting it up, and now we come to awareness of awareness, and specifically following the teachings of Padmasambhava, now in the second phase. Now, finally, it's as if you've let a boil. I, I know very little about boils, but I think in, in some cases you let the boil ripen, and only when it's fully ripened do you lance the boil, right? But you wait until it's, and then it can heal well. I think it's tr- correct, right? Well, we have a boil of the sense of I am in charge, I am separate. And it's not very ripened if one is schizophrenic or has Lou Gehrig's. It's only moderately ripened if you're just normal. And I'm kind of in charge, but not that much. Get over the mindfulness of breathing, it's starting to ripen nicely. Get over to settling the mind, it's getting really ripe. And so we get to awareness of awareness and get a nice big ripe boil of I am in charge. I am watching even now my own awareness. I am the master of my attention. Release, invert. Release, invert. Release, invert. Avol. So we've really got somebody in charge here. And then Padmasambhava says, okay, now the boil is ready to be lanced and come right in upon it. Now, some of you are just too clever for me. You say, I, I, know, I know the answer to this one. I know, I, I know. There isn't one. <laughs> yeah. Smart you. <laughs> of course, who just said there isn't one? No, there isn't anybody in here. Except me. <laughs> but don't tell anyone. <laughs> We're so clever. You know, we read at the end of the book what the answers are. <laughs> the quest here in this awareness of awareness is not to look in there and find nothing. Last year, there was a little, somebody gave me a little clock. Somebody gave me a little clock. Nice one. This is a much bigger clock. And it disappeared. It seemed somebody took it. We have no idea who took, who took it. And frankly, no interest. And then the mind center gave us another clock here. So that, that's a true statement. So now having settled that, that's in the past, and I don't really care one way or another. But imagine now that a clock had just been stolen. You know, it was a nice clock. Who's closest? (laughs) Bang. I I saw you eyeing this clock here, and I really want you to confess. Um, Frankly, I'm pretty sure you did it. And so if you just confess, then we'll forgive you. But if you don't confess, I think we're going to have to phone the the police, because this was a really nice watch. So Bang, did you do it? You know? 
<laughs> he quickly goes up and buys one, just like the one stolen. <laughs> but if, if Bang weren't so complacent and so mellow, he might say, I did not. I did, but I, I'm sure you did. And so he's not being rolling acting very well. I absolutely didn't. When that comes out, I mean, Tibetans talk about this. It's been going on for centuries. When we are falsely accused, when we are falsely accused, I didn't do it. I, why would you think that? Just gonna, that's stupid thinking. Just I'm sitting closest. What are you thinking? I, 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 I you know, I, I didn't do it. And the sense of there is someone here who could have done it, but I didn't do it. That is not a non-entity. That sense, I didn't do it. Right? Or if somebody gave me some really spectacular, absolutely world-class dark chocolate, and I put it right and put it right here, and I said, "Oh, who gave me that?" And out Roger's hand. Roger's hand comes. I did it. <laughs> I ordered it all the way from New Zealand. It's their finest. I, I did it. <laughs> there is a sense and this is the point there is a sense I did it there is a sense I didn't do it I am an agent who didn't do that I am an agent who did do that there is such a sense and that's what we're examining here what is your sense unless you're already an arhat then maybe you don't have one but if you're not an arhat yet we are looking for something that does exist and that is the sense I am in charge. I didn't take the watch. I did give the chocolate. I did phone my mother on Mother's Day. And so forth. Right. So we're looking for that. And then the question is, as we probe in and attend to this, what I've often called the lived self, the lived sense, excuse me, the lived sense, really Lebensfeld, very much in the context of Lebensfeld in German, the lived sense of I am the agent, as you examine that, scrutinize it and to see whether there's anything to it other than sheer appearances. But if you just go in and say, oh, there isn't one, then you've missed. You've missed the whole point of the practice. Okay? You've just skipped, skipped to the end of the book and given the right answer, which is absolutely not transformative at all. Just, oh, I don't exist. But now let's go here a little bit more deeply. And that is, as you probe inwards, you may be able to examine, actually to observe your actual sense of being an agent, which does exist. The question is, since that sense of being an agent does exist, the question is, is it authentic or is it delusional? Does it correspond to an actual sense? Does it correspond to an actual self, an actual agent? All right? The word iPod, or what's it called? Um, iPhone. iPhone. The word iPhone actually refers to something, to this. This is an iPhone, right? So I'm pointing to it. And then when I have a sense, so, so iPhone, it's that. When I have a sense, I am the agent. I stand apart from my mind. I am controlling my attention. My attention is it. I'm controlling it. There is that sense. There is that label. I am the agent. Does it have a referent? What is the referent? Does it have a referent? Or is it like my, me thinking, and I'm going to do this again because it's a silly, but it's so easy to understand. Je suis Napoléon. Je, je, vraiment. Je suis Napoléon. I am Napoléon. You know. And I could be psychotic. I could have delusional sense. I really am Napoleon and put my little hand in my, in my vest. And that sense, if I'm crazy, that I am Napoleon, that sense does exist. I really do think. Start saluting me and respect my French accent, you know. 
right? So the sense that I'm a Napoleon really does exist because I'm crazy, right? But then I come over to Marissa and she gives me a lot of therapy and she shows me that although I've, there is a sense of there being Napoleon, there is no Napoleon here. There is, there's not even a molecule of Napoleon here. There's not a mind continuum of mind. There's nothing here that's Napoleon. I am empty of Napoleon. And so that's the progression. Recognize you think you are Napoleon and then sent, check that out and then investigate to see whether it has any reference in reality, whether it's authentic or not. Now, final point. These are deep waters and it's, wor- and it's worth the time, I think. And that is, it's very easy to come to the conclusion then, aha, I have a sense of being this autonomous agent who stands apart from my body and mind and who's in charge of them. There is that sense, and that sense is completely delusional because in reality, there is no such sense, self. There's a sense of it, a grasping onto it, just like I can think that I'm Napoleon, but there's no Napoleon here. And I can also have a sense of or think that I really am the agent. I did it, I didn't do it. But there is nothing corresponding to that delusional sense of I am. So one may come to the conclusion, ah, I've got it. There's no agent in reality. There's, there's the delusion of feeling, sensing, experiencing myself as being an agent. That's a delusional sense, like thinking I'm Napoleon. But there is no agent at all. Thoughts without a thinker. It's just thoughts arising. It's just attention arising. It's just consciousness arising. But there is no agent. There is no self. There's no one here. And that is the conclusion of some schools of Buddhism. There is simply no one here. Anatta. No self. The Madhyamaka says, not so fast. Not so fast. If upon this engaging in this ontological scrutiny, really seeking to identify the very nature of the agent existing in and of itself, me in and of myself, and upon seeking that out, not finding it, if your conclusion is, aha, I don't exist. There's just the thought that I exist. There's just the thought that I don't exist. But I, in fact, don't exist at all. There's just thoughts. There's just feelings. There's just body, just perception, consciousness. That's all that really exists. But not me, because I'm just a fiction, right? One might want to think again. Because when you look for the object when you look for any, any object of the mind and you look for it as it exists in and of itself, independent of context, as it exists by its own self-defining characteristics. When you seek that out, there's no more finding of the object than there is a finding of the subject. The object is no more real than the subject is real. Thoughts are no more real than the thinker. They all arise in mutual interdependence and they're isolated and derive their existence independence on conceptual designation which identifies, labels, designates the whole which then has certain qualities as its attributes. But that attribute bearer, the object, the subject, existing in and of itself doesn't exist. So if you're going to conclude because you can't find yourself upon this ontological scrutiny that you don't exist, then you'll have to come to the same conclusion with respect to an iPhone. I'm looking for it. Is it the case? Is it the plastic? Is it the front, the inside? Is it the, the chips? Exactly what is the iPhone? And there's just a bunch of appearances here. 
but the iPhone that has all these attributes, I mean, it's so fun to do, think of this. Really think there really is an iPhone. There really is an iPhone in my hand. And now let's just take off the cover. That's obviously not an iPhone. And let's take off this little plastic screen. That's not an iPhone. And take off the back, the back cover. That's not an iPhone. That's just a, it's a plastic case. And, pl and, get, and take, take off this part. And then take out this little part. That's not an iPhone. That's just a part of it. And then take out this part. And the iPhone is having fewer and fewer parts now because I'm just taking out all the parts that are not iPhone. And take, oh, that's not an iPhone. Take that out. And take that out. And finally, ah, good. Now I've just got the iPhone itself with no parts. Because you know, I took all the parts away. None of the parts of the iPhone. So good. Now I've just got the, the naked iPhone. iPhone. How sweet. The iPhone is devoid of I. You know? <laughs> There's no eye and there's no phone. There's just, there's just an empty label saying, where am I? Where am I? You know, because it's got nothing to hold on to. So the iPhone is as empty as you are. Right? But then when it comes to consciousness, then one can think, ah, now I've hit a mother load. Now I've hit something essential. Thank you, Basa. Now I've hit something essential. Now I've come to something to, that really exists. I've scraped off all the non-essentials, all the, these fluffy, empty appearances. I've scraped off the sense of I am, poof, banished that. I've scraped off everything except for just awareness. Now that's got to be real. That's got to be inherently real. Just awareness. And it's, I'm going non-conceptual, so don't tell me that it exists independence upon conceptual designation. I've just gone non-conceptual, just awareness of awareness. Finally, I've hit something inherently real, absolutely real, truly existent. But the very approach to getting there in this practice of awareness of awareness, where not this, not appearances, not physical appearances, not thoughts, not space of mind, not, 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 not concepts, release all concepts as we're scraping away everything until the only thing left is just awareness. We have now, how did we get there? How did we come into this nucleus of awareness? Through conceptualization, through following instructions. Not appearances, you remember, not physical appearances, not mental appearances, not space of mind, not those not out, not in, now, and now release concepts, now that we've gotten there entirely by way of concepts, now, as is a little bit too late, now we say get rid of concepts. This whole isolation of awareness, separate from everything else that is not awareness, is a conceptual isolation. We have conceptually created boundaries around what is consciousness and what is not consciousness. The demarcations have been set by concepts, which then steps quietly back and say, who? Who, me? But consciousness already set the boundaries. Concepts. Conceptual mind already set the boundaries. So don't tell me you're not a culprit here. Don't tell me that you're not, what's the, the legal term? Uh, culpable. But there's another word. Complicit. Or part of the crime. If a person is part of a crime, Accomplice. Yeah, don't tell me you're not an accomplice. Don't tell me you're not an accomplice in this. Because you are the one that set this all up so that we can identify. And now you're saying this consciousness exists independently of conceptual designation. The conceptual mind created the borders. It defined it. 
through a process of elimination coming in here, right? So even that is rising to our awareness in dependence upon the conceptual designation of not all those other things and just that which is left over. Even that arises to our minds in dependence upon conceptual designation by a process of elimination, which is every bit as much a conceptual act as the process of addition. Right? So even this, this is where you step really into Vipassana. Once you've achieved shamatha, and you're resting right there in the substrate consciousness, then you probe into the very nature of that substrate consciousness. Does it exist in and of itself, by its own self-nature? And you say, nope. Nope. The boundaries also designated by conceptual mind. But the final point, then we come to rikpa. Rikpa, pristine awareness. You break through, so you achieve shamatha. And in shamatha, then you apply this ontological scrutiny, investigation. Look into the origins, the mode of presence, the dissolution of your own consciousness, your own substrate consciousness. And you see that it does not inherently arise. It is not inherently present. It does not inherently pass from moment to moment. You see that this substrate consciousness of yours, it too is empty, utterly empty of inherent nature. And then you practice Dzogchen. And you break through that substrate consciousness into this dimension of awareness that is non-local, beyond time, beyond cause and effect, beyond all conceptual elaborations, beyond birth, beyond destruction, coming and going, one and many. There was another one. What was the other one? What did I miss? There's another one. I always miss. There's eight. It doesn't matter. Now you've come to Rigpa. Now you've come to Rigpa which is completely transcending all conceptual designations. Aprapancha, Jopale Dewa, Deba, Jopale Deba, beyond all conceptual elaborations. Jeme, ineffable. Samgimikyapa, inconceivable, unimaginable. And now one might think, aha, finally one has come to something that is inherently real, truly existent, because this can't possibly exist independence upon conceptual designation. I'm going to say that one again. This cannot, this rikpa cannot possibly exist independence upon conceptual designation because it transcends all conceptual designation. So it can't possibly arise independence upon that which it utterly transcends. And in the Madhyamaka, it says, something is truly existent if it exists independently of all conceptual designation. So now it seems finally we found something that is truly existent because it does not exist independence upon conceptual designation. So it sounds now like the teachings on Buddha nature are incompatible with the teachings of Madhyamaka. Because the teachings of Madhyamaka, the perfection of wisdom sutra, say that everything from the tiniest atom all the way up to the omniscient mind of a Buddha is all empty of inherent nature. That's the spectrum. They're giving the whole bandwidth. From an elementary particle up to omniscient mind of a Buddha, all empty, equally empty of inherent nature. But from Dzogchen perspective, one might say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's something that is truly existent, and that's Buddha mind. That's Rikpa. Buddha nature. Primordial consciousness. So which is it? Is it empty of inherent nature because it arises independence upon, it exists, exists independence upon conceptual designation? 
which then violates all the teachings of Dzogchen? Or is it inherently existent, because it exists independently of all conceptual designation, which then violates the perfection of wisdom's teachings and Madhyamaka? So which are we going to violate? Dzogchen or Madhyamaka? Dzogchen or perfection of wisdom? And the answer is there's a middle way. And the middle way is to take very seriously the assertion that we find most explicitly in Dzogchen, but it's found elsewhere also. You find it in Tsongkhapa's teachings, Galupa teachings, that the Buddha mind is truly inconceivable and very explicitly in the Dzogchen. First that, the Buddha mind is inconceivable. You cannot wrap your concepts around it, package it and say, good, I got it. Cannot do that with conceptual mind. Dzogchen makes it even clearer, perhaps. Clearer to me, anyway. And that is that Rikpa is beyond the conceptual demarcation, transcends the conceptual demarcation of existence and non-existence. Therefore, if you say Rikpa exists, you've just put it into a conceptual category. And then you have to say, oh, you mean it exists independent upon conceptual designation? Then you're screwed. Oh, it, it doesn't exist in then you're screwed. You're screwed because you've done something that was incorrect. You've put it into the category of existence versus non-existence. And we human beings have defined existence and non-existence. And Rikpa transcends all human definitions. So then you're out. You're free. Okay. Let's jump in. Step by step, settle your body, speech and mind, and the natural states. Recalling, if you will, how similar this initial entry is to the culmination deep into the territory of Dzogchen, where settling your body, speech and mind, and the natural state is a direct method for realizing your own Buddha nature.
your eyes be at least partially open. Evenly rest your awareness in the space in front of you, casting your gaze downwards, taking nothing as an object. simply sustaining your awareness in the present moment, just being aware with unwavering mindfulness. Now simply deliberately be aware of something of which you are already aware. And that is you already know that you are aware. Rest in that knowing with no interest in anything else, no object. You know that you are aware. Just rest in that knowing. As soon as any thought arises with no interest whatsoever, release it instantly. Now as if you were looking at something, but then looked a lot harder with much closer scrutiny, more intense concentration. In the same way, arouse, concentrate, focus your awareness, but not upon any object, right in upon this sheer experience of being aware, which we call consciousness. Withdraw forcefully your awareness from all appearances. Withdraw it into itself. 
and utterly release. Release your awareness into space with no object. Invert again, release at your own pace, and see that this rhythm does not interrupt or alter the flow of your natural respiration. Let it continue to flow effortlessly. Now, as you continue to invert and release your awareness, as you continue to control your mind, as you invert your awareness, invert even more closely and with another question. What is your actual sense of being the one who is controlling your mind? Observe very closely to see what comes to mind when you probe inwards upon yourself as the agent. Then 
utterly release your awareness into non-objectivity. As you invert your awareness, I'll rephrase the question. As you're observing inwards, ask of your experience, who do you think you are? And what do you think you're doing? and release. Invert and release.
and release the cycle of withdrawal and release and let your awareness rest right where it already is effortlessly knowing itself Also, Padmasambhava says in between sessions, maintain, maintain unwavering mindfulness. So let's do that. See you a bit later.